0: As you take your seat, you can turn in your copy of the Word of God to Isaiah's Prophecy, chapter 6, Isaiah 6. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8 this morning of this very dramatic and memorable event in the life of the prophet at the beginning of his ministry. Isaiah goes into the temple and has the vision of God, and it leads— to a number of things in his life. Indeed, a a great transformation in his life. I want you to notice this morning Isaiah's vision in verses 1 through 4, and then the conviction that it leads to in verse 5, and then the cleansing that Isaiah experiences in verses 6 and 7, and then finally, Isaiah's service as he volunteers to the call of the Lord to go and serve his God in verse 8. Let's pray together as we look at the word this morning. Lord, I ask now that you would bless our time of study in your word, and that, Lord, your Holy Spirit would speak to all of us of eternal things. We ask, Lord, that you would get all the glory for what you will do with your word and through it, We pray that we would exalt Jesus Christ above all in our efforts to learn about you more this morning. Lord, bless our time, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, first of all, I want you to notice Isaiah's vision, and that is in verses 1 through 4. And I want you to notice a couple things about this vision. One, the timing of the vision, and then secondly, the elements of the vision. First of all, the timing of the vision. You'll notice in the first part of verse 1, in the year of King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted. I think it's interesting that in the midst of a very difficult time in history, the Lord God Almighty gave Isaiah this vision. In the year of King Uzziah's death, King Uzziah reigned for 52 prosperous years. And King Uzziah died as a leper for flouting God's holiness when his heart was lifted up. He started off as a good king, but later on he got proud. And as a result of that, he began to experience a downfall. He got sick with leprosy. He assumed he could go into God's temple and handle the sacrifices, but the Lord struck him with leprosy because he was proud. And yet in the midst of this, the loss of this king— which would create a national tragedy, right in the middle of this is when God gives Isaiah this wonderful vision. It's as if to say the king of kings is on the throne in spite of Uzziah's death. And as you read this and as I read that, I think it gives us Christians great comfort because we live in a world that is so turbulent with leaders. Many of them try their best. Many of them are evil. And yet the Lord God Almighty sits on the throne above all of it. And he is working out his purposes for his glory and for the benefit of his children. So we can take great comfort that the Lord is active right now. And so one king goes, but the King of kings and the Lord of lords is demonstrated to Isaiah. Look at the vision, beginning with the second part of verse 1. I saw the Lord seated on the throne, lofty and exalted. You know, the Bible says you cannot look at God and live. And yet there are several occasions in the Old Testament where individuals saw God. It was as if God concealed himself enough to allow human beings to look. This happened in Exodus 24 on Sinai. Whenever Moses, the others, went up on the mountain with the Lord, they had a meal with him and they saw God. We don't know what that was like. We do know that you cannot see God in His full glory. Otherwise, just like looking at the sun, it would kill you. The train of His robe filled the temple. It suggests that He is peerless. His greatness exceeds all others, and none can compare with Him, this great God. And then in verse 2, He speaks of the seraphim. Seraphim were literally fiery ones. They were winged creatures. And in this case, they were manlike. They had face and they had a feet and hands. And they stood above him. And the point of this description is to emphasize the holiness of God. God's holiness gives cause for these creatures to cover their face and to cover their feet because of God's blazing holiness. And their creaturely service. These creatures don't have sin. And yet, as creatures, they are not the Creator. Therefore, they have to cover their feet and they have to cover their face. It's a frightening sign. And they stood there and they engaged in what we call an antiphon. That is, they would call out to one another Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The praise centers around God's holiness. As they say to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. You know, the Hebrew language uses repetition to express a superlative. For instance, in 2 Kings 25, verse 15, we have the saying, pure gold. In the Hebrews, it says gold, gold. Pure gold is gold, gold. It's a superlative. Here is the only place in the Bible where equality is raised to the third power. Holy, holy, holy. It's as if to say divine holiness is so far beyond anything the human mind can grasp that a super superlative is needed. And a total truth about God is expressed. You see, God's glory is the sum total of all of his attributes. And holiness, just like love, is one of those attributes. And here, it is said, three times. Holy, holy, holy. And it doesn't stop there. It goes on in the end of verse three. The whole earth is full of his glory. Just as holiness is the whole truth about God himself, so the whole truth about his eminence is in creation. The God of glory is everywhere present, undeniable and inescapable. Our God doesn't reside in matter like this desk. That would be pantheism. No, God is a pure spirit. And he is everywhere present. And so his glory decorates the entire created order. We read that in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. They demonstrate that God is present. And finally, in verse 4, he wraps it up by saying, "...the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out." It communicates the customary reaction of the created order, in the presence of the living God. We have an example of that in Exodus 19, 18. The mere declaration of the Lord's holiness is enough to bar entrance to a forbidden site. And this description of God affirms the point made by Isaiah earlier in chapter 2, verse 11, and verse 17, that he is the high and exalted one, or he is high and lifted up, and no one else should be. So Isaiah has this vision. And you say, well, so what, John? People talk about visions all the time. Well, let me apply it for a second. Isaiah's vision should be your vision. It should be my vision. You see, what Isaiah saw was unique and unrepeatable. However, the vision is recorded in sacred Scripture. So that we might partake of this same vision, not by sight, but by faith. By faith. Our entire experience with the Almighty is one of believing in Him and exercising faith in Him on the foundation of His Word. His Word is so important, as I mentioned to Mark and Alessandra in the baptism. His Word is our foundation. As Peter said in the passage we read, for you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring Word of God. And so you see, the Word demonstrates these marvelous visions that men of God and women of God have. All that to say, you don't need to create a vision. You can participate in this vision by reading God's Word and by faith approaching him so that the eyes of your heart, the eyes of faith will be open and you would see what is on the written page. This is not something new. It's been happening for years. David did it in Psalm 63, verse 2. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. David said in Psalm 27, 4, One thing I've asked of the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. This is a spiritual exercise. And it's by faith. Faith, as Hebrews 11, 1 says, is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And it's why Paul prays in Ephesians 1.18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that when you go to the Lord and you say, God, is this real? Show it to me. And in prayer, by faith, he begins to open the eyes of your heart, and you begin to experience the very thing that Isaiah experienced. So you start to say with David, Lord, You have blessed my soul. You have blessed my heart. I want to be in front of you all the time. I want to live in this place where I have unhindered fellowship with you. Give me the grace to do that. That's living by faith. When you're dealing with sin, the Christian living by faith says, Lord, open my eyes to your holiness and your greatness. Protect me under your wings, your strong hands. And help me to get through this time. We don't need a new vision, ladies and gentlemen. There are plenty of them in the Bible. And they touch every facet of your life. So go to the Scriptures. And when you see these individuals having this kind of an encounter with God, don't forget. Because you're in Christ. And by faith, through the eyes of faith, you will see the unseen. And you believe that this God who fills the heavens and the earth and whose robe fills the temple, this God is acting on your behalf and this God is as close to you as the next breath you take. That's faith. Isaiah's vision must be our vision. Well, notice the second thing, Isaiah's conviction. Look at verse 5. Isaiah sees this amazing vision, and he is stricken with a sense of his own sin and guilt and unworthiness. He says, woe is me, for I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. I've seen the Lord Almighty, the King, the Lord of hosts. It was not a new revelation of God. Proved Isaiah's undoing. Just a realization of what had always been true a holy king, an omnipotent Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, to use Isaiah's title. Now, see, the big difference is it's personal now. It's personal. This is a vivid picture of a spiritual reality that God's holiness and all of his other attributes force. Me forced Isaiah, forced all of us to see the great gulf fixed between us and him. The Bible says sin brings separation. This is the heart of regeneration. I don't mean to suggest that we should reenact Isaiah's experience, but that we should believe Isaiah's eyewitness testimony of God Almighty and subsequently realize how far short of God's glory we fall. That's what the Bible teaches. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. We need a Savior. You know, this is what we read about in Peter, or excuse me, in Luke. Luke chapter 5, that account when Peter told the Lord Jesus, look, Master, we haven't caught anything all night, but I'll go out with you as we fish one more time. And they brought in that huge load of fish. And in verse 8, did you catch it? When Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. He encountered the holiness of God in the eternal Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was stricken. But the Lord Jesus said, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll catch men. He received Peter. He loved Peter. He converted Peter. And he used Peter in a mighty way. You know, when Isaiah says, I am ruined, the word means silenced. He was speechless in the temple whenever he saw this vision of God's holiness. I couldn't help but think about that this past week. You know, we preachers are people of a lot of words. We talk and talk and we share and we teach. But you know what the real teaching and preaching is, is not so much words. It's a changed heart. It's a changed life. And you have to be stricken with God's holiness. In other words, it's good. It would be good if many of us as preachers and teachers were actually silenced at times. That we stood in awe of God's holiness. That we really believe this great, glorious God is at work in human beings. And that he is opening hearts and lives by faith. And when we stand to give this word, we must never practice self-advertisement. We must glorify Him and lift up Jesus Christ. It's good to be silenced. It's good to stand in awe of Almighty God because that is the prerequisite to truly ministering in His name. And it's not just true for ministers. All of us are called to serve in the body of Christ as Christians. All of us have gifts. And here is Isaiah stricken with the holiness of God. And this shocking, life-changing aspect of the vision was that Isaiah himself experienced a vivid and powerful and personal meeting with God that allowed him to have firsthand glimpse of the supernatural realm. Have you had that kind of experience? Have you ever been stricken by the fact that God is holy and sinless and I am a sinner? And there's absolutely nothing I can do to bridge the gap between me as a sinner and this holy God. No, God must do something. And you'll notice that's exactly what he does. Isaiah is convicted of his sin. He confesses, I'm a sinner, I'm not worthy, in so many words. But then comes about the cleansing. He doesn't even have to ask. The Lord moves in because the Lord loves the humble. He is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And whenever a man or a woman or a young person says, I'm a sinner, I have needs, the Lord God Almighty moves in. Look at verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. Isaiah was undone. He was ruined. He was silenced. And you can see this was an act of God's grace. God's grace. The Lord simply moved with these tongs a a coal from the fire. We know from Ezekiel chapter 2 that there are coals in Ezekiel's vision. And they sit under the throne of God in in Ezekiel's prophecy. These are most likely the coals that were taken. And they're not magical coals. What makes them effective is that they come from the throne of God. Just like when we baptize a child, what makes it effective is not some hocus-pocus with the water, it's the presence of faith. It's the trust in Jehovah. It is saying, he sent Christ to be my Savior. And I believe with all my heart, from the tip of my toes to the top of my head, I believe with all my heart that my sin is forgiven. And that's what happened. Behold, and touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. You see, sin has to be removed. That's what Jesus Christ did. And sin has to be atoned for. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did. He came and died on a cross and shed His blood so that your sin and my sin might be absorbed and wiped out. And so that atonement That is, satisfaction and payment would be made for our sins. Isaiah was cleansed. The writer of Hebrews talks about the cleansing of your conscience. He was so cleansed from his sin that his conscience was free in order to serve. And it's a wonderful thing not to live with a guilty conscience, but to live with a sense of peace before a holy God. Well, you'll notice all these things happen and led up to Isaiah's service. He heard a voice of the Lord. This is the first time the Lord speaks. Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I, Isaiah, says, here am I. Send me. It's as if God says, all right, everyone. I have some things to say to the human race, and I need a spokesman. And not just Anyone. I want someone who knows what it means to be forgiven. I want someone who knows what it means to have a clear conscience. I want someone who has stood in my presence, whose heart has been changed by my grace and mercy. And of course, that's Isaiah. He says, here am I, send me. You know, there are many people that engage in Christian service before they have a clear understanding of God's holiness, their own sinfulness, and the need to be cleansed and forgiven. So here, Christian service or service for Almighty God takes place after seeing the holiness of God, experiencing it, conviction of sin, and cleansing from that sin. Now Isaiah is ready to serve. How about you? Let me challenge you with that this morning. You know, the Bible presents the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory as the God-man. Christ made God known to us and accessible to us. The Bible says, John 14, 6, Jesus speaking, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Jesus died on the cross of Calvary as a sin-bearing substitute to make full atonement For our sins. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin, that is Jesus, became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Christ calls us to Himself so that we might be born again, that we might be converted and serve him for the rest of our lives, just like Isaiah did. Have you had an encounter with God, with his holiness, with your sinfulness? Have you experienced the forgiveness of sins that is offered by faith in Jesus Christ? If so, are you serving with joy? If you're not, the invitation today is come to Jesus. Jesus says in Revelation, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will open the door, that is the door of your heart, I will come into him and sup with him, fellowship with him, and he with me. Come to Jesus, if you never have. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for this unusual and unrepeatable vision. And I pray, Lord, that by faith, all of us would take hold of it, just like every other vision in the Bible, that we would apply it to our own lives as a means, by faith, to grow closer to you and to experience what your people of old experienced, as we have it recorded for us in Scripture. Oh, Lord, bring the Scriptures to life in our hearts, as your very Word convert the lost disciple of the saved, help all of us to seek to know you better and to live lives characteristic of holiness, that we might glorify you, the one true and living God, and that we might be a blessing to you and to each other as we conduct our lives by faith. Lord, do all these things and more, and we'll give you the praise and glory for it. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.